So last week, in the middle of this virus, we took a break from our regular rhythm with John, and we were in John 17, and we looked at the book of Lamentations, and in particular, I encouraged you to think about how to make it through a trial like this with this theme of hope springs from truth rehearsed. We looked at three particular principles from Lamentations chapter 3, and uh, those were that um, at the end of the day, God's mercy never ends. We saw the fact that waiting is not a waste, and we saw that God is always good. I hope those truths were helpful to you as you've kind of navigated the various challenges and the dynamics connected to this cultural crisis that we're in. Today we're going to be back in John, looking at the end of the high priestly prayer, and then into John chapter 18, the passage that I just read. And let me tell you what happened when I opened my Bible this week to start studying. I thought, how in the world am I going to put two texts together that originally I had divided and put separate so I would have two sermons and I actually came to my study with a little bit of fear and trepidation because I had originally designed to have two sermons. And then when I put them together, it was unbelievable the way in which these two verses, or these two sections rather, are not only stitched together in the context of the biblical narrative, but also have incredible relevance for where we are today. So today what we're going to talk about is pressurized discipleship pressurized discipleship. So if you're a, a child and you're listening, I want you to listen really carefully because I'm going to help you understand today what's going to happen inside of you and how to think, if you're a believer, how to think, uh, how to respond to your brothers and sisters, your mom and dad, how to deal with kind of the pressure of this environment. If you're a mom and dad, I want you to listen carefully because I'm going to help explain to you some of the things that not only are going to go inside your soul, but what it is that Jesus wanted these disciples to know as he prayed for them, as he prayed for us, and then how, how Jesus operated, and then we're also going to see the failure of the disciples. If you're a single adult, if you're all by yourself or with your roommate, tensions at work, challenges, everything's pressurized right now, isn't it? doesn't matter where you are, what season of life you're in. College student just learned that your whole uh, senior year or your year is gone. Maybe you're a high school senior and you're mourning over what's not going to happen. All of these things create pressure. And you need to know that when this account in the biblical narrative happened, it was a moment of immense pressure. So today what we're going to do is I'm going to show you this pressurized discipleship from three different angles. What we're going to look at is the vision that Jesus had for how these disciples were to operate. And we're going to see that vision is not just for them, it's also for us, if you're a Christian. We're also going to see the example of Jesus. What did he do when the pressure was on? And then third, we're going to see how Peter responded and Peter failed miserably. But that's just chapter one of chapter two in Peter's life. And so then we're going to draw some applications at the end about how do we think about how to navigate just this week in regards to what it means to be a disciple who's under pressure. You may be listening in, you're not yet a Christian. To be a disciple means that you've chosen to follow Jesus. And my prayer for you, friend, would be that the pressure of this moment would cause you to ask some really important questions about where you're headed, what's really important, and what's inside your soul. And really wrestle with the brokenness of the world. So listen in as we talk about what it means 
to be a disciple in a pressured environment. So first of all, the vision. Look at chapter 17 and verse 18. That's where we left off in our study. This is the high priestly prayer of Jesus. He's praying for the disciples. And it says here that Jesus said to this, he prayed this, he said this to the Father, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for your sake I consecrate myself that they may be sanctified in the truth. So Jesus in this moment, here's his vision. He is sending his disciples out. He knows that he is leaving. They have no idea what's going to come. He knows that the cross is right in front of him. They have no clue. And Jesus is praying that these disciples would be sent out on mission. And as they're sent out on mission, he says, I consecrate myself for them that they also may be sanctified in truth. So it's so interesting. Jesus is sending these disciples out. He has an external mission in mind and he has an internal mission in mind. So as those disciples are sent out, Jesus is also praying that they would be sanctified inside of themselves. So here's what we know right from the beginning, that for every Christian, God has two aims in your life, always operating at the same time. He wants you to reach out and he wants you to be transformed on the inside. And pressurized discipleship helps us to see this very clearly. That's the same mission the church has always had, but in moments of intense difficulty, we see that this mission becomes even more critical. So as you think about how to live this next week, think of it in this way. Lord Jesus, work through me and work in me. Work through me and work in me. Sometimes they give you an assignment when your feet hit the floor, first thing that should be on your head, in your mind, and in your heart. Last week it was hope springs from truth rehearsed. Maybe this week it could be Lord in me and through me, in me and through me. Help me to follow you. Then notice what Jesus says in verse 20. Here's his vision. I do not ask for these only. Oh, I love this. But also for those who believe in me through their word. Who is that? That's us. Jesus in this moment is praying for the people who would hear through the word of the disciples. And our church, every believer who listens to this message right now, is a product of that very request. Jesus is praying for them. He prayed for us. But notice what he prayed. He prayed that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So what does Jesus pray? He prays that as these disciples are being sent out, and as he prays for all of those who would be sent out, that they would be one, united, that their love for one another, their concern for each other, their relationship in terms of how they engage with one another would be an inexplicable unity. Or I'll use a word that we're hearing all the time right now, an unprecedented unity. The kind of unity that the world would look at and would marvel. Friends, I trust that when you read the news and, and see what's happening, you can see, can you not, that our world is gonna be marked by some moments of great generosity, but also moments of incredible self-centeredness. I promise you that as we make our way through this crisis, that there are gonna be things that emerge that we just look at and go, what in the world? How do people act like this? We're gonna see division. And yet Jesus prays that believers would be radically different from the world by being radically similar to the unity, listen to this, of the Father, Son, and the Spirit. So what Jesus is saying is that he wants individual believers in the context of their relationships to so demonstrate that they have been radically changed by the gospel that the way that they treat one another 
is the aroma of the very unity between Father, Son, and Spirit. Now, friends, when you're battling for unity in your home, when you're battling for unity with people that are in close proximity to you because the pressure of the moment, be reminded that unity is not just the better course, that unity in the context of love says something beautiful about who the Father, the Son, and the Spirit is. Which is why Jesus says that the world may believe that you have sent me. You know, it may very well be that thousands, if not pray millions of people, would come to know Jesus during this time. And one of the ways that they very well may come to know Jesus is because they see something different in the community called Christian. They see something different in how we love one another, how we treat one another. And here's the hope. The hope is that Jesus, by his grace and through his power, is going to help that to happen. Look at what he says in verse 22. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. So Jesus gives the disciples this glory. What is this glory? This glory is a taste of what God is like, such that as they're living out in the midst of this pressurized moment, there's this glory that God has placed within them that then changes them. In other words, if you're a Christian, the pressurized reality of this moment will only surface the sovereign work of grace that's been Put into your heart because of what God has done for you. Hear the words of John in 1 John 5 and verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. You see, what Jesus is saying is that your heart has been so transformed that you can't help but love other people. Surely, we're not going to do that perfectly. We're going to see the example of Peter in a moment. But do you know that the hope of your endurance, the hope of your ability to love hard people and to be unified with sinful Christians is not based upon you. It's based upon the work that God has done in you. So you may find yourself this week saying, God, I don't have any energy to do this. Would you help me, Jesus? Remember that it wasn't that long ago in our study in John that Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. That mattered when we studied it. I think it was, in, it was January of this year. It matters now more than ever. So this love relationship then continues. Look at verse 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. So Jesus is saying, Father, you loved me. I don't want to be separated from my disciples. Have them come to me. Verse 25, O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I have made known to them your name. I will continue to make it known. And notice this, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. And this is how Jesus ends the high priestly prayer. What's he saying? He's saying that underneath our lives is the sovereign love of God. Underneath the life of Jesus and then underneath the life of the disciples is this plan of God birthed in love. And friend, can I remind you that God is still at work in love. Jesus is going to go to the cross in love. And then he's going to ask the disciples 
He's going to ask us to be like him in that love. And this love that God has for us becomes the foundation of our lives such that when moments of pressure come, we come back to the truths that we know. God loves me, he rescued me, and I'm called to follow him. I'm telling you, this pressurized season is going to reveal some things inside of us, isn't it? And we need to be reminded about this particular vision that God has for what discipleship is supposed to look like. Because pressurized moments tend to surface some things. When I was putting together this sermon, I couldn't help but think of a moment when I was on sabbatical in 2014. And my wife and I were in Colorado. And the city which we were in was uh, unusually high in terms of its altitude. And I started experiencing a little bit of um, altitude, not sickness, but just kind of altitude tension. You know what that's like. The, the air is thin. It's hard to breathe. And um, yeah, I'd gone on a run earlier in the day and kind of felt the heavy breathing connected to the thin air. But I'll never forget it. In fact, my wife and I talk about it often in terms of just kind of how um, silly it was, but she left me to go shopping somewhere, and I went to go shopping for jeans, okay? So I'm going into these jeans store, and I don't like shopping for clothes to begin with, but I especially don't like shopping for jeans, because whenever I bring the jeans home, my kids tell me you bought the wrong kind, they're not in style anymore, and you know, I'm not trying to be stylish anyways, but I don't want to be mocked, so I have all this pressure inside of me, and I'm going inside the store, I'm trying on jeans, like they don't fit, they're not right, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and I'm feeling internally all of this tension, and I'm just getting so frustrated, and internally I'm getting angry, I'm getting angry as I'm trying on jeans. I mean, it's just not, not a good scenario. And I come out, go to a Starbucks, grab a cup of coffee, sit down. My wife comes up, sits next to me, and she said, you all right? I said, no, I'm not all right. She said, why? What's the matter? I said, because I can't find any jeans. And she looked at me like, what's up with you? And I was like, I can't breathe. My heart's racing, et cetera, et cetera. And the fact of the matter is, is the different change in the environment took a normal task, like trying to get jeans, and it created an unusual level of pressure that quite frankly brought out something within me that was always there, but the pressurized moment suddenly surfaced it. Can I just remind you, kind of a little illustration like that, that's happening all over the place in the context of where we live right now. And this is a moment for us to be reminded what Jesus' vision for discipleship was supposed to be in the context of a pressurized environment. Namely, that we would be the kind of people who would embrace that God has loved us, that Jesus has sent us out on mission and we'd see the pressurized environment as an opportunity to shine the light of the gospel so incredibly clearly. So that's Jesus' vision. Now secondly, look at the example of Jesus in chapter 18 because we, we see here so clearly the way in which Jesus operated. The text says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. So this is the Garden of Gethsemane. Other biblical writers record that Jesus then went and prayed. This is the moment when he says, Father, not my will, but yours be done. John doesn't put that in this particular account. Then we see what happens. Judas, who had betrayed him, who also knew the place. So apparently this was a place that Jesus went to frequently with his disciples, a place that he frequented in prayer. In fact, the text even says that, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. Verse 3, Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Notice that John adds that. The idea is there's this troop of soldiers, and they have all of the earthly emblems of power, 
And here they are, and they're going to arrest the Son of God. Then Jesus, knowing all what would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. And notice this, Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. John wants you to see this. Judas is right in the mix. Judas, Judas is, being, is, is betraying Jesus. He's right in the middle of all of these soldiers. And so when he said this, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So the words of Jesus created sort of this percussion moment and the soldiers fell down. John wants you to know who this is. We have all these soldiers with their little weapons coming to the king of kings who could have in a moment called down 12 legions of angels who by the mere words out of his mouth could have destroyed these puny little human soldiers. And then we see Jesus said to them, I am he. He said to them again, verse 7, whom do you seek? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. He said, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, now notice this, let these men go. So what I want you to see right off the bat here about Jesus in terms of his example is here is the powerful son of God, demonstrated his power, who in the midst of this moment has concern for his disciples. This is the very heart of Jesus who uses his power to protect those he loves. He uses his authority not for his own protection. No, instead, Jesus is being arrested, or as one commentator said, the king was not being captured. He was giving himself over to his enemies. And while he does that, he protects his disciples. What we're going to see in the middle of this cultural crisis is the ways in which Christians who have authority, use that authority to protect others. And when they do so, they're going to be just like Jesus. We're also going to see, I promise you, people who are going to use their authority to protect themselves, who are going to use their authority for their own self-centered aim. And yet here is the way of Jesus. Jesus protects his disciples, and he says, this was, John says, to fulfill the word that he had spoken, of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. That's a reference to an Old Testament statement that Jesus had quoted earlier. And some scholars believe that John puts this in here in order to help us to understand that Jesus knew that these disciples couldn't handle being arrested right now. So he protects them because they're weak. They're vulnerable. Now, skip ahead to verse 19. No, verse 12, sorry. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and they bound him. So they, they took him away. Imagine this, Jesus' hands tied behind his back with thick ropes and they're being, he's being led. The Son of God willingly offers himself. Now, John helps us to see kind of the political framework that's happening here because they first go to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas. Annas used to be the high priest. The ruler prior to Pontius Pilate had removed him. And so his son-in-law, Caiaphas, is now the high priest. But Annas has a reputation in the community and a lot of political and personal capital. And so he's like the shadow high priest. So they first take him to him. And he begins to question Jesus. Notice verse 14 says it was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it 
should be expedient that one man should die for the people. This is in reference to what Caiaphas had said earlier. John puts this in so that you know that Caiaphas had said things, something previously that was under the sovereign control of God, that Caiaphas has no idea that his life is being orchestrated, even this event, with purposes beyond himself. Now skip ahead to verse 19. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. He asked him, give us names. Who are they? Asked his teaching about his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. Why is Jesus talking this way? Here's why. He's not going to give up his disciples and he's going to be wise in what he says. But he's also identifying here that what just happened with Annas questioning him and him being arrested was illegal, was improper. And so Jesus is balancing here here his authority and also his understanding of what had taken place in the context of this arrest wasn't proper. And as a result, he's calling on them, inviting them in order to see that what's happening here isn't right. Notice what happens next. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? And Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? So here the tension is starting to take off. And yet notice, Jesus doesn't use his power. He doesn't use his authority to free himself. He doesn't use his his divine attributes here in order to get even with these people and the unfairness of it all. Here is Jesus who is entering into the world as a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief in the midst of a broken system. And Jesus, as the suffering servant, is going to be the recipient of all of the brokenness that's embedded both in the hearts of the people and also in the system that he now is being interrogated through. Verse 24, Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. So here we see Jesus responding with wisdom and responding with grace. So pressurized discipleship, in light of the example of Jesus, means that we respond with grace and also with wisdom. Jesus models here meekness in the face of unfair treatment. Do you know the word meekness? It means power under control. Jesus exemplified it. In fact, he even taught about it in the Sermon on the Mount. He said this, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. I'm praying for meek Christians. Power under control. So the vision, the example. Now let's third here look at the failure and then we'll draw some conclusions and some applications. The final aspect that I want you to see here in this pressurized discipleship is the candid portrayal of Peter's failures. You know, one of the reasons that I love the Bible is because of its honesty in dealing with the disciples. The Bible doesn't make the disciples out to be like Marvel superheroes, like they have superhuman spiritual strength. Instead, the Bible portrays disciples the way that they are, broken people rescued by a Savior. So if you're not a Christian and you struggle believing the Bible, can I just suggest to you, this is one of the reasons you can trust the Bible, because it's candidly honest about the followers of Jesus. If I'm going to write a a story to try and convince people to become a follower of Jesus, And I want to try and make it up. I'm not going to show the failures of disciples. 
I'm going to portray them as those who in every way you want to see them as heroes. And here we see the failure of Peter. And and the reason why this is in the Bible is because Peter isn't the story of the Bible. Jesus is. And we see here in the failure of Peter some unbelievable grace lessons. Go back to verse 10. Then Simon Peter, drawing a sword, struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. So Peter sees what's happening to Jesus. He loves him. He wants to protect him. So he pulls out a small sword and he strikes the high priest's servant. And Jesus says to Peter, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So once again, we see that Peter and Jesus are just on the same page with what's happening. He, he wants to do something. He, he, he wants to protect his master, his rabbi. He wants to take decisive action. And in the moment of passion, he was terribly misguided. Do you resonate with Peter? I sure do. Isn't there an internal pressure, especially when things get difficult, to, to do something? Maybe even something rash, the frustration, the fear causes us to want to do something pretty dramatic. And Peter can't, he can't stand by and allow Jesus to be arrested. He has to stop it, so he does something unwise. I wonder how many of us have been guilty of rash actions and conduct when the pressure is applied. The heat of the moment can lead us to say and do things that are regrettable. Peter doesn't know that God's working out a plan that this arrest fits into. It's not his plan. And one of the challenges with pressurized discipleship is when God blows up your understanding of the plan. And here's Peter. It happens. But there's more. Verse 15 tells us that Peter follows Jesus at a distance. So did another disciple. And that disciple, we don't know who it is, but somehow he was known to the high priest. So he was able to get inside the courtyard. He entered into it with Jesus. Peter stood on the outside at the door. The other disciple then came back, told the person who was watching the door, keeping kind of guard at the door, the servant girl, to bring Peter in. So Peter's brought in. So whoever this person was, he had access and was able to get Peter in. And the servant girl, verse 17, at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? And Peter instinctively said, I am not. Split-second decision to own Jesus or disown him. And Peter disowns him. Now, part of the reason you need to know this is so important and critical is in another gospel account, it tells us that as they were walking up to the Mount of Olives, to the Garden of Gethsemane, in that very moment, Jesus told them that they would all fall away. And Peter said, even if all of these people run away, I will never disown you. And Jesus said to Peter, as they're going up the Mount of Olives tonight... Tonight, you will deny me three times. And Peter said, no, I won't. His, his, his overconfidence was a killer. And you need to know, friend, that in the context of pressurized discipleship, overconfidence can be an enormously challenging thing that we all need to wrestle with. Text continues, verse 18, now the servants and the officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves and Peter also was with them. So he's inside the court, he's warming himself. Skip ahead to verse 26. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, 
you also are not one of his disciples, are you? And he denied it and said, I am not. Verse 26, one of the servants of the high priest, notice John makes this personal, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off. Like, this person's the blood relative of the guy who was injured, said, did I not see you in the garden with him? And Peter again denied it. And then John says, and at once the rooster crowed. Wow. You know what's crazy? Is that Peter would prove later to be one of the bravest disciples of all of them. Later on in John's gospel, Peter will be restored to relationship with Jesus. He will preach the premier sermon at Pentecost, and thousands of people will come to faith in Christ. But in this moment, in the pressure of a plan that was blown up, in the pressure of the uncertainty of what's going to happen, in the pressure of being named and putting himself at risk with Jesus, Peter fails miserably. And can I just tell you, this is in the Bible for a reason. Let me give you three applications. I trust that you know the pressure that is around you. You feel it, don't you? It may be a low-grade pressure or it may be intense. It's, it's hard to believe it was only 12 days ago that like the NBA suspended its season and Tom Hanks and his wife announced that they had the virus. Some would say that was the tipping point when our culture just sort of woke up to, whoa, this is serious. My guess is you've shaken your head at the losses in the stock market. I'm sure like you, like me, felt a little scratch in your throat and thought, oh no. So in light of this, let me give you three truths to remember. Number one, friend, as we're walking through this pressurized season and in light of this text, I want you to consider Jesus. By that I mean the 12th chapter of Hebrews tells us that we are to consider him so that we don't grow weary or faint-hearted. To consider him means that we rehearse his teaching, that we remember his example, that we rejoice in the fact that he died and rose again to put an end to everything that's wrong in the world. That at the end of the day, we have to think about who he is and what he's done and what it means to be a follower of his when it comes to the gospel and what it means for Jesus to be on the throne, there is no difference from this Sunday than a year ago. Jesus is as in control of this Sunday as he was last year. He'll be as in control of next year as he is this year. And we need to consider him. The second thing is we need to embrace dependency. So consider Jesus. Secondly, to embrace dependency. Peter's primary issue was his overconfidence. Even though Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing, we need to be reminded over and over that our dependency upon Jesus is absolutely essential. No wonder Peter writes this later. Listen to this, this, this text in 1 Peter chapter 5. He says, humble yourselves. This is Peter. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. And then just think of Peter writing these words. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Peter knew this. He experienced it. 
Resist him, Peter says, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Friends, let's embrace what it means for us to be dependent. Third, so consider Jesus, embrace dependency. Third, John 17 tells us that Jesus prayed for us, and so therefore, friend, we can, we can rest in God's grace. Jesus not only prayed for his disciples, but he prayed for all of us who would believe. He prayed that we'd be one. He prayed that we wouldn't allow the pressure of a broken world to drive us apart. He prayed that we wouldn't allow, by God's grace, the devil to destroy us. Peter was a target from Satan. He, he, he targeted him. Jesus even told Peter in Luke 22 that the devil had come and wanted to sift Peter like wheat. And yet in the midst of that, Jesus said that he prayed for him. It's no wonder that Peter would say these words in 1 Peter chapter 5. That Christ himself will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So consider Jesus. In the midst of a pressurized world, embrace dependency. Third, rest in God's grace. Because discipleship was made for pressurized moments. I know you feel it. And I think we're probably going to feel it even more. And through the vision and the example of Jesus, and yes, even through the failure of, G of Peter, we can stake our claim that the Savior who called us, the Savior who called you to his eternal glory, the Savior who loved you, the Savior who bought you, the Savior who controls all things in life, the Savior who looks at everything in the world and has it all in the palm of his hand, that Savior can restore you, confirm you, strengthen you, and establish you. You see, because while you may be sheltering in place, as a friend of mine, Dan DeWitt, has said, the gospel isn't sheltering in place. While you may be in lockdown, the gospel isn't in lockdown. And while some people may be in quarantine, the gospel isn't being quarantined. Why? Because Jesus is still reigning supreme. In the midst of pressure and challenges and difficulties, the gospel goes forth both through us and in us, such that Peter would say to him, be the dominion for now, now, and forevermore. Pray with me, won't you, Jesus? Thank you that there is grace available to us for everything that we face. Thank you that there is no trial, no difficulty, no hardship that has taken over our lives that you can't shine in and through us. And so we pray that in the midst of lots of pressure and lots of difficulties that the light of your love would grow deeper and deeper so that we could extend that grace to people around us. And we thank you, God, that in the failure of Peter, there was a restoration. And so when we don't respond correctly, we thank you that there is grace available to us. We don't have to be perfect. We just have to know the promises of the word. So help us for these pressurized days. We pray this in Jesus' name.